Thank you, Laura. Great job. Take your Bibles, turn with me this morning to Matthew chapter number 8. Matthew chapter 8. We're going to begin reading in a few moments in verse number 18. Special thanks to those who spent several hours this morning preparing the Father's Day breakfast. Some of you, like myself, forgot that we were having Father's Day breakfast and had breakfast at home. Of course, I had to eat again when I got here. Didn't want to hurt anybody's feelings. It was great. Two breakfasts a day is a new thing I'm going to shoot for. I like that. Matthew chapter 8. Happy Father's Day to you. So glad that you're here with us this morning. I want to speak to you on the subject of the cost of following Jesus. I want to submit to you this morning that Jesus had a rather extreme view of discipleship. At this point in Matthew's Gospel, Jesus seems to turn away several would-be followers. So what's up with that anyway? Why would Jesus not accept these men who wanted to be his followers? Three people who expressed a desire to be a follower of Jesus approached the Lord. To each of them, he sets forth a different aspect of what true discipleship involves. And when Jesus confronted them with the real cost of being his follower, now we don't know this for sure, but as far as we know, all of them turned away. There are three men who desire to be followers of Jesus. Two are recorded in the Gospel of Matthew, three in Luke's account. And so obviously we're talking about what it means to be a follower of Jesus. But more than that, it's about the high cost of following Jesus. And in this message, we're going to examine what hinders or what barriers there are that keep people from following the Lord. I want you to read along with me as I begin to read in verse number 18. And when Jesus saw great multitudes about him, he gave a command to depart the other side. And then a certain scribe came and said to him, Teacher, I will follow you wherever you go. And Jesus said to him, Foxes have holes and birds of the air have nests, but the Son of Man has nowhere to lay his head. Then another of his disciples said to him, Lord, let me first go and bury my father. But Jesus said to him, Follow me and let the dead bury their own dead. In this text and in the corresponding text in Luke chapter number 6, chapter number 9, uh, we're going to look at three barriers that everyone who would follow Jesus must face. First of all, there is the barrier of personal comfort. Verse 18, and when Jesus saw the great multitudes about him, he gave a command to depart to the other side. Jesus saw the large crowds that were being attracted by his healing, and so he instructs his disciples to get into a boat, and they're going to cross to the other side of the Sea of Galilee. Even as he does so, we see the profession of one particular man, a scribe. It says in verse 19, Then a certain scribe came and said to him, Teacher, I will follow you wherever you go. I don't think he quite understood what he was saying. Jesus and his followers have begun a journey that will ultimately end in Jerusalem. And of course, in Jerusalem, Jesus will be crucified and die. 
And as they begin this journey, a scribe steps out of the crowd and rather glibly, I think, announces, Teacher, I will follow you wherever you go. Based on the response of Jesus, it would appear that he he felt this man was too quick to make a promise that he had no idea whether or not he could keep. You look at the response of Jesus in verse 20. And Jesus said to him, Foxes have holes and birds of the air have nests, but the Son of Man has nowhere to lay his head. Perhaps surprising to us today, Jesus does not seem overly impressed with this man's enthusiasm. This man was no doubt sincere in what he said, but it is the problem that he has not stopped to count the cost. This man's focus was on where he was willing to go. It was on geography. And Jesus' response was on what he would be willing to give up in order to go. His decision might bring to mind some things that we've seen in our own lives. Teenagers who return from summer camp. They go there, they get fired up, go forward in a service and pledge themselves to serve the Lord. Or... Maybe it reminds us of men who went to a promise keeper's rally or women who've gone to some women's conference and in the inspiration of the moment make commitments to be better marriage partners, to be better parents, or to be more involved in their local church. Or even might remind us of people in our own services who have come at the end of the service and tearfully rededicated their lives to the Lord. I've witnessed all of those things, and I don't want for a moment to lessen their value or to say that these decisions were not genuine. But at best, they are a beginning point. It is the follow-through that matters the most. Jesus responded by saying in verse 20, Foxes have holes and birds of the air have nests, but the Son of Man has nowhere to lay his head. Now, Jesus did have places to sleep, of course. He had friends who welcomed them into their homes. He had disciples who brought them into their homes. But the point is that he didn't own any such place. When he decided to teach a lesson on paying one's taxes, he had to borrow the money to do it. His possessions were so meager that when he was arrested and crucified, he owned nothing except the clothes on his back. He was so poor that he was buried in a borrowed tomb. But that was okay because he didn't need it long anyway. Lest you should think that Jesus was not serious about what he said, I want you to consider the words that the Apostle Paul found as he wrote to the church in Corinth in 1 Corinthians chapter 4 and verse 11. He says, to this very hour we go hungry and thirsty. We are in rags. We are brutally treated. We are homeless. We work hard with our hands. And when we are cursed, we bless. And when we are persecuted, we endure it. And when we are slandered, we answer kindly. We have become the scum of the earth, the garbage of the world, right up to this very moment. I want you to just think about that last verse for a moment. It's true that down through the centuries that believers have been considered by some the scum of the earth. Even 
in what we consider our own enlightened country in this day to some people, Christian, being a Christian means that you're not quite right in the head. But the fact that Jesus never owned a home does not mean that his followers today cannot own a home. Most people in this part of the world, even Christians, own homes. Perhaps the point for us is that most of us became Christians without ever having to give too much consideration or thought to the implications of that decision. But I assure you that in places where Christians are persecuted, that those who are in the process of becoming his disciples consider carefully the cost before they make that decision. Neither do preachers in that part of the world try to lure them in with promises of an easy and prosperous life, free of trouble of any kind. Yes, Jesus meant that it was possible that following him may cost you immense discomfort. The discomfort of having to love difficult people, the discomfort of giving until it hurts, the discomfort of giving all that you have in the ministry of Christ and his church. The discomfort of being disliked, the occasional sense of having nowhere to lay your head. Perhaps most importantly, though, Jesus saying, if we walk with him, we will begin to sense that this world is really not our home. Not only is there the barrier of personal comfort, there is the barrier of financial security. Look at the request of the second man found in verse number 21. Then another of his disciples said to him, Lord, let me go. First go and bury my father. Now at first glance, we really don't know what to make of this man's request. Now we all know that a death in the family, especially the death of someone in our immediate family, is a valid reason for taking off time from work or even putting off something for a while. But if we think about this for a moment, we really consider what he's saying, it seems likely that this man's father has not died. In Jewish culture, because there was no embalming, a corpse had to be buried within 24 hours. It's still that way in many places, any third world countries today. It's possible that he is saying that his father is elderly and he needs to stay at home and take care of his father until he dies. There seems to be two things I think that we should take note of. It is likely that what he is saying is that he wants to stay home until his father dies at some distant point in the future. By the way, you will find, by the way, you'll find that the phrase, I must bury my father, is a familiar Mideastern phrase that is still used. It meant I must stay home until my father is gone so that the estate can be settled and I can receive my inheritance. Perhaps this man, and I think it's highly likely, had heard, overheard the earlier conversation that Jesus had with the first man, in which he told that first man to be a disciple really meant that there was no prospect for an easy life. It's possible that this man is saying, look, I cannot walk away at this point in my life without my inheritance. Perhaps he had the thought, well, I'll just 
stash away a nest egg. Just in case this disciple thing doesn't work out, I have a fallback plan. Or secondly, perhaps it's nothing more than an excuse that allows him to delay following Christ to some distant, undetermined time in the future. But when Jesus calls him, it is always in an invitation for the present. Jesus never calls someone to follow him and said, follow me tomorrow. It was always, follow me now. In retrospect, what does this say to us in our own day? About our practice sometimes of singing 14 verses of I have decided to follow Jesus while people try to make up their minds whether or not they're going to follow the Lord. The response of the Lord is found in verse 22. But Jesus said to him, follow me and let the dead bury their own dead. The reply of Jesus on the surface appears very harsh. But Jesus is not being harsh, nor is he suggesting that his followers ignore their responsibilities to honor and care for their parents. So what does Jesus mean when he, say, when he says, follow me and let the dead bury their dead? What he's saying is, serving him must always take priority over everything else in life. In fact, the very practice, the very price that we're talking about has been paid by faithful missionaries all down through the centuries, especially before the days of global travel by air. Missionaries serving full-time on the field often were not able to attend the funerals of even those most dear to them. Jesus said that anyone can carry out the responsibilities of making arrangements for a funeral, but only a disciple can carry out the responsibility of giving the good news of the gift of eternal life. So what's most important? What is more important, digging a grave or giving the news of eternal life? Not only is there the barrier of financial responsibility or financial security, there is the barrier of family relationships. A new, Matthew doesn't include this. But Luke does, and so I'd invite you to turn to Luke chapter 9 and verses 61 and 62 to find the story of this third man. The request of this third man is found in Luke chapter 9 and verse 61. He says, Lord, I will follow you, but first let me go and bid them farewell who are at my house. Of course, the question we wish to answer is, what does this man mean when he says, bid farewell to those who are at my house? Now, the request doesn't sound unreasonable, and in fact, it has biblical precedence. There's a story in the Old Testament of how Elijah called Elisha to follow him in the prophetic ministry by casting his mantle upon him. And Elisha accepted that, but he begged Elijah. He said, please let me go and kiss my father and my mother, and then I will follow you. And Elijah permitted him to do so. Well, let's look at the response of Jesus in verse 62. I think that we can tell there's more to this man's intentions than just a desire to say goodbye to his parents by the way that Jesus responded. Perhaps Jesus knows 
that if this man returns to his home and his family, they're going to try, do their very best to talk him out of following Christ. Jesus completes his thoughts on the cost of discipleship in verse 62. Jesus said to him, No one having put his hand to the plow and looking back is fit for the kingdom of God. But exactly what does that mean? I think to understand that verse, you have to have sometime had a relationship with someone who was trying to plow a field. Now, I know about this because as a young man, my grandfather would have one of us grandsons drive his Ford tractor while he walked behind the tractor with a plow that was designed to be pulled by a horse. As we tried desperately to plow a straight line across the field, Granddad would shout his instructions as to what we were doing wrong. Usually that involved the use of some pretty strong adjectives, if you get my point. When someone is shouting at you, it's hard not to look backwards to see what they're shouting about. And when you did, you found out the truth of this verse. In my experience, to look backwards while you're plowing forwards is a prelude to disaster. You can't plow a straight line going forward when you're constantly looking backward. Neither can you do a work for God and constantly looking back at the past. But what does the constant desire to look back indicate spiritually? First, it is an expression of a desire for the old ways. This speaks to those who dream about how life might have been had they never stepped onto the road to follow Jesus. Have you ever heard someone give a testimony of their salvation and you ended up wondering after you heard it whether they really thought it was worth what all they had given up? They almost seem to glory in how bad they used to be. Sadly, it also expresses regret for the old way of life. I don't know about you, but when I think about the past, I tend to remember past opportunities wasted. Finally, we need to consider that looking back means that our orientation is in the wrong direction. As Paul said so well in Philippians chapter 3 and verses 13 and 14, he said, forgetting those things that are behind. And I think he means both good things and bad things. Forgetting those things that are behind and reaching forward unto the things which are ahead, I press toward the mark of the high calling of God in Christ Jesus. We have to keep our eyes focused on the job that God has called us to, there are always those who are pining after what they have left behind. Who dream about how life might have been had not, they not chosen to follow Jesus. Who always keep their eye in the rearview mirror. And in so doing, they will never do well in serving Jesus. In the text, we are told the story of people who want to follow Jesus. In each case, somehow, they just can't force themselves to pay the price. What they're offering to do is to follow Christ with conditions. 
The commitment of each of these would-be disciples is faulty because it imposed limits. Importantly, each of the three examples is an example of the barriers that can still keep us from making a commitment to follow Christ. Each one of these three men's commitment to Christ are nullified or minimized by other commitments in their lives. Following Jesus, being a disciple of the Lord, means putting everything, and I do mean everything, aside which hinders our commitment to follow Him. I'm sure that many of you, if not all of you, heard the inspiring story of William Borden. In fact, I've told it myself. In 1904, William Borden, who was heir to the vast Borden Dairy Estate, graduated from Chicago High School. When he graduated, he was already a millionaire. His parents gave him a gift for graduation of a trip around the world. While traveling through Asia and the Middle East and Europe, Borden got a burden, a burden for the world's hurting people. Riding home, he said, I'm going to give my life to prepare for the mission field. When he made that decision, he wrote in the back of his Bible two words, no reserves. He graduated, he went on to Yale, and after he had graduated from Yale, he turned down many high-paying offers for jobs. After he did so, he entered two more words in his Bible, no retreats. He went on to seminary, Princeton Seminary. He completed that work, and after that he sailed for China to work among the Muslims, stopping first at, at Egypt for some preparation. While there, he was stricken with cerebr cerebral meningitis, and within a matter of a month, he was dead. Some people would say, what a waste. But I don't believe so in God's plan because in his Bible, underneath the words, no reserves and no, re no retreats, he had written the words, no regrets. There's a great contemporary Christian song by Chris Tomlin, I think, that describes the life of following Jesus with no limitations. It says, in part, I want to live like there's no tomorrow. I want to dance like there's no one around. I want to sing like... Nobody's listening before I lay my body down. I want to give like I have plenty. I want to love like I'm not afraid. I want to be the man I was meant to be. I want to be the way I was made. I want to close with an illustration. The illustration is from the life of Dietrich Bonhoeffer. Dietrich Bonhoeffer has written what has become known as a classic. It's called The Cost of discipleship. The title of the book really is much more meaningful when you learn the story of Bonhoeffer's life and death. Bonhoeffer was a young pastor in Germany during the 1930s as po Hitler's popularity was growing. He was a pacifist and he refused to get involved with the political scene. But in the early 1940s when Bonhoeffer and other pastors began to learn about how the Jews were being rounded up and exterminated, he realized he could no longer remain silent. As a follower of Jesus, 
He couldn't stand by while those atrocities were being carried out by the Fuhrer. So Bonhoeffer joined the underground German resistance and even became a plot to remove Adolf Hitler. He and other conspirators were discovered, arrested, and thrown into a Nazi prison. While in prison, Bonhoeffer served as a pastor to all the other prisoners, and he taught God's Word every day. He wrote a number of letters from the prison that has since been published. These show that his faith not only grew during this time of suffering, but he grew spiritually. As the Allied forces moved toward Berlin, Hitler demanded a death sentence for all those who had plotted his death. So at dawn on April 9, 1945, just three weeks before Berlin fell to the Allies, Bonhoeffer was executed. According to the eyewitness account, his death was brutal. He was stripped of all his clothing, led naked into the execution yard where he was hanged. The prison doctor who witnessed Bonhoeffer's death later described the scene. He said, I saw Pastor Bonhoeffer kneeling on the ground, praying fervently to God. I was most deeply moved by this lovable way this man prayed, so devout and so certain that God heard his prayer. At the place of hanging, he again knelt and said a short prayer, and then he climbed a few steps to the gallows, brave and composed. His death ensued after only a few seconds. In the almost 50 years that I worked as a doctor, I have hardly ever seen a man die so entirely submissive to the will of God. The cost of following Jesus hasn't changed. It doesn't mean that we will have to die for Jesus, but it does mean that we will have to die to self. Let's pray. Father, we want to thank you that what you've called, and called us to is not an easy thing, but it is something that you will walk with us through. Thank you that you've called us to difficult things, that you've trusted us with that kind of responsibility. Help us to become aware of what it means to truly be your follower, your disciple. And that these things, there are things in our lives that can be a detriment to us really being disciples. That you and our relationship with you must have first place, be the priority of our lives if we're going to truly be disciples. Father, there may be one here this morning that knows, knows for sure that they've never really asked Jesus to be their Savior. They've never really confessed their sins and accepted Him as their personal Lord and Savior. I pray that you'd help them this morning to just simply turn to you and admit they're sinners, that they don't deserve to be saved. They deserve the punishment that is just for their sins but that Jesus took their punishment, and through his taking that punishment, they can be forgiven. They can trust you for salvation. Father, I thank you that those of us who know we are saved realize what you've done for us, but help us today to get a renewed sense of the importance of that. Lord, whatever it is you want to do in our service today, we want to turn this time over to you. 
We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.